what is the beginning of our story? As Christians, what is the beginning of our story? Sometimes it's difficult for me to find a good beginning place. You could talk about where we're part of the church, and so Acts chapter 2 is a pretty good beginning. But Acts chapter 2 doesn't make much sense without the life of Jesus. Uh, And so the beginning of the church is kind of dependent upon what came before the church in the life of Jesus. But even Jesus, in his ministry, much of the meaning and significance found within is derived from what came earlier uh, in the story of Israel. He is the culmination of the story of Israel. He's the culmination of the the idea of the priesthood and of the Torah and of the the monarchy. And and, and so many of the scriptures of Israel are fulfilled in Jesus that Jesus' life and his death and resurrection makes sense in light of what happened in the story of Israel. And so you start saying, okay, well, the story of Israel is the beginning story, but really the story of Israel is a solution. It's a rescue plan to a problem that started with the whole world and even before God called Abraham. And so it's like, wherever you think you can find a good starting point, you can always go back a little bit further and find a, a, an earlier starting point or, or a backdrop that's essential to have in place before you move on to where we are. So as you read through the story of the Bible, there are these major climactic moments that seem to shift everything. You have one grand sweeping narrative from creation to even where we are now. Uh, You have this grand sweeping narrative, but throughout there are these climactic moments that seem to change everything. We're going to study one of those this morning, and it's found in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. But Acts chapter 2 is the continuation of the story of Jesus as it explodes into a new realm, as it explodes into a new world, as it explodes into a post-resurrection world of the kingdom of God and the church. And, And the book of Acts is going to focus on this. And really, the lives that we live and the story of which we are a part is a continuation of the story that we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 2. We're part of something that has ancient and historic roots. We're part of something that has existed longer than any of us. When you are a part of the church, when you are a Christian, and where you wear the name of of Christ as your own, you are connecting yourself with Jesus, but you're also connecting yourself with all followers of Jesus in every place and of all time. You're connecting yourself to something that truly is ancient, You're connecting yourself to something that has had value in this world for thousands of years and to people all over the world, even people you've never met, even people with whom if you did meet, you could not communicate because they don't speak your language. We all have this incredible bond and that bond goes all the way back to Jesus. But for the beginning of our story or for the the new climactic moment that leads to our story, you can see roots of it in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, uh, if you notice the, the word like the penta, uh, you're, getting, you're getting a five there. This is a 50-day period after Passover. Uh, Jesus was crucified on uh, the, the Friday before Passover, and he was raised on the Sunday after Passover. And 50 days from Passover is uh, the day of Pentecost. It's another Jewish celebration. And so Jews from all over the world have come together for this moment. And as we study through Acts chapter 2, and as we read through parts of it this morning, there's some things that I hope that we realize. This story did not drop out of thin air into our Bibles. Uh, This story is actually the culmination of a lot that has been taking place. There is an awful lot that's been pointing to this day in Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 1, for example, uh, is the nearest thing that was pointing to Acts chapter 2. If you read Acts chapter 1 in verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells his disciples, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Lord or which uh, the Father has fixed by his own authority. But then notice verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That verse right there is a brief summary of what the book of Acts is all about. The Holy Spirit falling upon God's people, and then through the Spirit taking the message of Jesus, beginning in Jerusalem, and then expanding to Judea, which surrounds Jerusalem, and Samaria, which is a little bit to the north, and then exploding to the remotest parts of the world. Those missionary journeys of Paul that you've heard about, those are that last part of how this message is, is traveling throughout the ancient world, culminating in the gospel reaching the capital of the ancient world, the city of Rome. When it reaches the Roman heart of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, that's where Paul continues teaching and the, and the book of, uh, of Acts comes to its conclusion. And so all of that is a story that we are now a part. I mean, it has continued to grow from Rome through time and space to where now it's in Maryville, Tennessee. And uh, we get to be a part of that story of God and that story of, of, the, of Christ and that story of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But notice how it says, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. In Jerusalem... When the Holy Spirit comes upon the people, that's what Acts chapter 2 is. It's the beginning of that launching point. The church started with an explosion. The church started quite literally on fire. Uh, fire comes down and, and the church has its beginning and catches fire and begins to change everything. And that's the story of which we are a part. So Acts chapter 2 has been pointed at by the words of the resurrected Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 1. But it's also been pointed out by basically the entire book of Luke. Um, if you remember, and as we go through Acts 2, we'll see this. The gospel of Luke is the, the first half of the book of Acts. Uh, Luke and Acts should be read together. They are volume 1 and volume 2 of the same story. And Acts 2 is fulfilling and bringing about a lot of what has been hinted at and a lot of the themes that begin and, and are planted in the gospel of Luke grow and, and bear fruit in the book of Acts. And you see that in, uh, in Acts chapter 2. Joel 2, this powerful and wonderful prophecy from the book of Joel about this time of forgiveness and restoration of God's people and the spirit of God being poured out on his people has long been anticipated and finds its ultimate fruition in Acts chapter 2. You can see seeds of it again throughout Luke, and you can see how it continues on after Acts chapter 2, and we had a lesson not long ago that kind of looked at some of those ideas, but it's been pointing to Acts chapter 2. You can go back even further than that. The whole story of Israel has been pointing to Acts chapter 2. One of the things that we'll see is that in Acts chapter 2, the church, as it's described, and it's really fascinating. You read through Acts, and when the church is doing what it's supposed to do, the church looks a whole lot like what God wanted Israel to look like all along. The church looks a whole lot like what God's uh, intentions for Israel actually were. And so we'll see that in Acts chapter 2. We'll also see in Acts chapter 2, even before the story of Israel, when you're reading those opening chapters of Genesis, you're seeing those are pointing to this moment as well. 
The Tower of Babel, for example. The Tower of Babel uh, finds a really fascinating parallel in Acts chapter 2, where the curse of Babel, where all the languages are dispersed and people spread throughout the world, is reversed, where people throughout the world come together and their languages all become one. Now, instead of being in that state for their own glory, it's to speak the mighty works of God. What we're seeing throughout Acts 2 is the culmination of a very long and detailed history that has been pointing to this climactic moment. And it's the launching point for the church, and it's the launching point for who we are as a people in our community. It's the launching point for the story of which we now find ourselves a part. So, Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and that's, uh, we're going to, to read through, um, through it, and not, maybe not all every verse of it, but, uh, and we will see how uh, some of these things come to, come to be and what that means for us. <clears throat> so in Acts chapter 2, in verses 2 through 4, I want to see here where you can see some of the idea of the Spirit of God promised in Joel 2 is about to come on the scene in powerful and in authoritative ways. The people uh, are there for Pentecost, chapter 2 and verse 1. They're all gathered in one place. And then verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so here you have the outpouring of God's Spirit on this day. They're just, they're sitting there in this upper room with one another, and then, I imagine you hear the rattle, and things begin to shake, and the wind begins to blow, and all of this happens, and then these tongues that look like fire appear among each of them, and I imagine there's fear and awe and a lot of strange emotions swirling at that moment, but then the Holy Spirit fills them, and they're able to speak. It uses the word in other tongues. Uh, the word tongue in the Bible, I mean, it, it could, if it's talking about it, have like reference to a literal human tongue, but uh, usually it just means the word language. So whenever you see like speaking in tongues, it just means speaking in languages. Or, you know, if someone's spoken another tongue, it means they're speaking in another language. Uh, it's just, you know, different, different languages have different idioms and different ways of describing things. So the word tongue is just a way of talking about a language. And right here, what it's saying is they're all able to speak in these other languages as the Spirit is giving them utterance. I think that's Joel 2, what has been pointed towards coming about at this moment. I think that because Peter's going to say that in just a minute. Uh, but not only that, uh, you then see in verse 5, the next uh, addition to the story is where we found out that there are Jews living in Jerusalem, men from every nation under heaven. That's actually going to be very similar to uh, the beginning of the story of uh, the Tower of Babel, or, or maybe the end of the story of the Tower of Babel, where you find people are going to be dispersed from, uh, to uh, every nation under heaven. In verse 6, it says, When this sound occurred, the crowd came together. So, like, the people in Jerusalem all heard something crazy happening at this house. And so they all start gathering together trying to figure out what this sound is that has occurred. And... Uh, they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in their own language. 
So they get there, and these people from all of these different uh, native tongues, they're able to hear in their own native tongue. So instead of like the Tower of Babel, where everyone starts in one city speaking the same language, and then it ends with people all throughout the world speaking different languages, here people all throughout the world with their different languages come together, and they're all able to hear in their own languages. And it says in verse 7, that they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And Acts does not want you to miss this point. It's actually going to go and start listing the nations of the ancient world where these people are from. It mentions in verse 9, uh, there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya, around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And so if you were to, to compare that list of nations to uh, a passage from Genesis, it's often called the Table of Nations, uh, it shows where all of the descendants spread out, the descendants of, of Noah, what you'll see is remarkable conformity between all of these different nations of the ancient world that are now represented back together again in one city. Only in the Tower of Babel, which by the way, the word Babel is just the Hebrew word for Babylon. The only reason they translate it as Babel and that's story instead of Babylon is, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the only reason they do it, I guess, is because, because Babel, you know, you babble when, when you speak in kind of an English that has, that has language uh, connotations to it. Um, and so they, they call it the Tower of Babel, and now it's just tradition to call it the Tower of Babel, but it's the exact same word as Babylon. So it's the Tower of Babylon. Um, in the Tower of Babylon story, you have all the people gathered in Babylon for wickedness and for pride, and that it ends with division. With this story, you start with division and it ends in unity, not based on wickedness and pride, but based on proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. So you have this incredible reversal. And by the way, that reversal is going to be seen throughout the book of Acts, because one of the most important points to know about what Israel's whole story was all about it was not always intended to be just about Israel and the descendants of Abraham. But even Abraham's initial promise was that through him would be blessed all the nations of the world. If you, like, the Tower of Babel story happens in Genesis 11, and that's where the sin spreads throughout the world, and that's where the languages are divided throughout the world. You see all that stuff happen. And then of all of those people who are, have been dispersed, one man is chosen. In the very next chapter, Genesis 12, is where God calls Abraham, I need you to bring blessing to all of these places. So like Abraham is proposed as a solution to the problem that we see at the Tower of Babylon. Abraham is going to bring the blessing of God back to the nations. And he's chosen to do this. And the story of Israel is about how this is going to be done. But what eventually happens is Israel and the nations don't much get along with each other. They don't really like each other. In fact, there's constant friction between Israel and Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or the, the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. And, and there ends up being this hostility between Israel and the nations. And what Jesus is doing is not coming to destroy the nations, 
which is what a lot of people wanted their Messiah to do, but to bring that blessing back to the nations, to fulfill the role and the purposes of Israel. And what you're seeing here in Acts 2 is a glimmer of that happening. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that coming to fruition. You'll see the, the gospel being taken to the nations on these missionary journeys. You'll see it being taken to Rome to bring about blessing and forgiveness of God and even the heart of the nations. By the way, this isn't something that's just a new idea from the book of Acts either. This is something that has repeatedly been spoken of by the prophets of Israel. They often pictured every nation under heaven coming together. You can see it in Isaiah chapter 2. You can see it uh, in, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, there are these nations that arise, and they look like beasts. One of them's called a lion. One of them's called a bear. One of them's called a leopard. And one of them's just called a beast. You know, there's not even an animal that fits him. Uh, but these beasts, they roam and they terrorize and they destroy because that's generally what nations do. Uh, nations, especially powerful ones, uh, they can you know, expand their own might and glory and they use warfare and violence to do so. And, and so you see all these things and you're thinking, wow, those have true authority. But then in Daniel 7, God chooses to give authority and his kingdom to someone else. And it's not a big, mighty, powerful beast or nation. It's one like a son of man. And he rides on the clouds of heaven up to the ancient of days, and he receives a nation. He receives a kingdom. And then it says that all people of every tongue and people and nation might worship and honor and serve him. The idea of this picture is that you have all of these nations, which you kind of see from the Tower of Babel story, that have acted like the Tower of Babel, that have acted like Babylon. And they, in fact, some of them are Babylon. Uh, but then God's going to choose his kingdom to go to one where people from all of those nations will be joined together in the worship and in the praise of the one true Son of Man. That's what Luke and Acts is showing us happening. And that's the message that Paul is taking. So Paul believes that the time has come to be a blessing to all the nations. That's what the Gentile mission is. By the way, even the word Gentile and the word nation, it's the exact same word in the original language. So it's like when you talk about going to the Gentiles, it's the exact same thing as saying going to the nations. Well, you know, and, and so you kind of use context. If you're talking to a person, you wouldn't call him a nation. You would call him a Gentile. And if you're talking about a nation, you wouldn't call that nation a Gentile. You would call it a, a nation. But it's the exact same word. And so your translators just kind of use whichever one is most appropriate for the context. But I think it's really important to know that his Gentile mission is his mission to the nations, which is what Abraham's whole promise was about, that he would become a great people, but that those people would become a blessing to all the nations. And through Jesus, that is happening. And Acts chapter 2 is giving you a picture of that, and it's launching that mission that is going to eventually hit all of the nations, even those who are not Jews, but who are Gentiles. And so what we're having right here is something really incredible taking place. The Tower of Babel is being reversed from a story that brought division into the world to where now in Acts chapter 2, unity is being brought to the world. That's one of our purposes, by the way, to bring about unity and reconciliation among men and among God. That's one of the purposes of the church. That's how Paul can eventually write, and we talked about this last week in our Sunday night lesson, things like, therefore there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. Why? Because in Christ, you are all one, and you're bringing unity back to a world that's sorely in need of it. Through Christ, we can unite this world, and that's one of the things that we're called to do. And Acts 2 is showing us what that mission looks like in its very, very infant stages. But then Acts 2 continues, 
And Peter gets up to give an explanation. And he says, look, men, I'm going to tell you something. Um, all of this stuff that you're seeing, it's not an accident, and it's not random, and it's not out of nowhere, and it's not because we're drunk. That's what they're accused of. He says that something else is happening here. Joel 2 has been pointing to this. As a matter of fact, the whole story of Jesus has been pointing to this. After he quotes Joel 2, he begins to tell them the story of Jesus, which really in some ways is a brief summary of the Gospel of Luke. He's telling them the story that happened beforehand that's been leading up to this. If you look at verse 22 of Acts 2, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which he performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. All right, so he's talking to the people in Jerusalem who are well aware of some of the things that Jesus has done. Um, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you get a much bigger idea of that little summary statement right there of the miracles and the signs and the wonders. But he is summarizing Luke very shortly to tell them about the life of Jesus. And he says in verse 23, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you used the Romans to have this man crucified and put to death. But then notice verse 24. But God raised him up again. And I love this phrase in verse 24. Putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. God raised Jesus from the dead. And the thing about death, wherever it is found, it's accompanied with agony and it's accompanied with grief. But in this story, in the story of which we are a part, God puts an end to the agony of death because it is impossible for Jesus to be held by its power. And because of that, it is impossible now for us to be held by its power. The agony of death is put to an end because death is losing its power through Jesus. Death is losing its power through the plan of God, and we get to be a part of that story. And so Peter very quickly summarizes the Gospel of Luke and the story of, of Jesus. One thing that is very interesting is at the end of Luke, after the resurrection in chapter 24, two different times Jesus gets with some disciples, and there's a phrase used. It says, he opened their mind to understand what was written about him in the scriptures, in the law of Moses, in the Psalms, and in the writings. Jesus apparently had a Bible study with his disciples, and they began to see him in the things written about him in the Old Testament, which they had never seen before. We are not told exactly what Jesus said to them, but one clue is by reading the New Testament and seeing how they use the Old Testament. One really, really good clue is by reading the sermons in the book of Acts and seeing the way that the Old Testament is used and how there are passages that had never before been read about Jesus, but now when they read them, they begin to see Jesus there. The first example of it is right here in verse 25, uh, where Peter begins to quote, from, uh, from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 16, a passage that had been thought of to be about David. But here we're going to find out that there's actually a deeper meaning and a richer fulfillment found elsewhere. He says in verse 25, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, and he was at my right hand, so that I uh, will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope. 
Notice verse 27. This is going to be his key point for quoting this passage. Because you did not, or you will not abandon my soul to Hades um, or the realm of the dead, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. But you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So death will have no power over God's Holy One, and decay will not set in. He won't abandon or neglect or forsake his very life and essence and being to the realm of the dead. No, he's going to come back, and then decay will not set in. That sounds a lot like resurrection. Uh, that's what that language is, is very reminiscent of. Death doesn't win, but there's going to be something else that wins instead. Now in verse 29, Peter is going to begin explaining this. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Here's Peter's point. This passage can't be about him because I have pretty solid evidence that he has died, he is in Hades, and his body is undergoing decay. You can look at his tomb and you can find that. But did you know there's another tomb in Jerusalem? One that is completely empty right now one that people are still talking about, one that has created quite a buzz in the city. There's a body that's not there and it is not undergoing decay because it was not abandoned to Hades. So this passage must not be talking just about David. It must have something or someone else in, line, in mind. And what Peter's point is, is that this one who this passage is speaking of is the Jesus who performed the signs and the wonders and the miracles, who God attested to you that he is the Lord and the Christ through the things that he did. As you look at verse 31, or 30 and 31, he says, And so also, because he was a prophet, talking about David was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, that he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So there's this promise made to David that one of his descendants would forever sit on his throne. And he's saying that this passage is best seen about that one, that descendant whose throne would endure forever. Notice there's a couple of, of ways that, uh, that Peter is arguing for the resurrection of Jesus, which is ultimately the foundation of our faith and of what's happening here in Acts 2. You can see the final point he makes in verse 32, where he says, this Jesus, God raised him up to which we are all witnesses. I'd say there's three points that Peter makes here about the resurrection that are going to have a profound impact on that audience that's listening. One of them is that there are scriptures that make the most sense by reading them in light of Jesus. Uh, if your minds are open to begin seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, there are passages that perhaps at one point were quite curious to you that now if you read them in light of Jesus, you can begin to see them a little bit more clearly and, and begin to make more sense of them. Another is that there are two tombs in Jerusalem. One of them still has a rotting and dead body in it, and the other one is empty. The empty tomb is something that if Jews wanted to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, they very easily could by removing the stone and showing that his body was still there. The fact that they did not do that was because they could not do that, and the body was not there. There was an empty tomb. And then finally, he says in verse 32, of which we are all witnesses. 
there are quite a few people who not only saw the empty tomb, but then saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. So he has prophecy, he has an empty tomb, and he has witnesses of the resurrection that Peter is appealing to right here as he proclaims what God has done through the, uh, the Messiah. Then, if you look at verse 36, we'll bring his lesson to a close. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Messiah of Israel and the Lord of God's people was the one who was rejected and was beaten and was mocked and was crucified. That is not the story that anyone expected for what would come of their Messiah. So how do you know that it's true? If you hear a story that it's complete opposite of everything that you thought it was supposed to be, why would you believe it? I think it's because of that empty tomb and those witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. That's going to be your key clinching point as to how they can know that this story and this Jesus actually is from God, that he actually is their Lord and their Christ. And when they hear this, they know something needs to be done. And they ask what? What, what shall we do? They're pierced to the heart. And Peter responds to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That Joel 2 prophecy about the Holy Spirit, that whole story of the, the book of Luke, the whole story of Israel, the whole story of God's creation is coming to its fulfillment right here, and you get to be a part of it by changing your life into conformity to that story, having your sins washed away in baptism, and receiving the Holy Spirit for yourself. And the promise in verse 39 is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. There's another glimpse, right, of what this, where, where this story is headed. To all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And then the story continues, and you see this community formed. And this community gathers together. They, they see the apostles now doing signs and wonders. They are having regular communion with each other and having meals with one another. They're selling their property and making sure that everyone is provided for and that people are cared for. You, you see all of this taking place, and in it, you're seeing them becoming the community that God always wanted to have formed. A community that Israel was supposed to be, where there was no needy among them, where they loved their neighbors themselves, and where they loved the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're seeing that coming about in this community formed in Acts chapter 2, and you'll see that community throughout the gospel of Luke, or, or throughout the book of Acts. And we, as Christians today, get to join in this story and get to be a part of this community. This is a spirit-filled, forgiven community of God who unites the world through the reconciling message of Jesus Christ and who gives hope about the power of victory over death through the resurrection of Jesus and about the forgiveness of sins that we have through repentance and baptism and the goodness of Jesus who's made that available for us. That's our story. And that story has spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the world, including Rome, including Europe, including Africa, including Australia, including the United States, including right here in our community. What are we going to do with that story right now in our community? There were some in the book of Acts who were sent, and they found themselves with a mission. And I would suggest that we have that same mission today. We have a mission to bring this saving, wonderful, reconciling message, the message of peace and a message of hope, a message of salvation to the world around us, and it's incumbent upon us to take it seriously 
and to do our very best. So the challenge as we draw our lesson to a close is to begin thinking about who it is that you want to share this message with and reach out to them. Maybe come up with a name. Maybe come up with a couple of names of people who you would like to talk to about this message that we have started in Acts chapter 2, about this story of which you are a part. Maybe explain why you're happy to be a part of that story. Maybe explain why that story is a good thing, why it is called good news, and why the message of Jesus is still relevant and needed today. If there's anyone here who wants to join in this story through naming Jesus as Lord of your life and having your sins washed away in baptism, living a new life for him, you are invited to do so. If you have the need, you can come here on the front row or you can meet with some of our elders in the back, but please do so while we stand and as we sing.